At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. This morning, and Pastor Vince, me and my wife, believe in that church growth methodology as well. We got five kids at home, so we've made our contribution to, uh, to the church. How many uh, love what God is doing here at Chesterfield, Woodside Chesterfield? How many thank God for that? Um, you have no idea how much it blesses my heart to be here with you guys this morning and how much of an encouragement um, this particular campus is to the entire Woodside Fellowship. I mean that so much. We are so encouraged as we hear how God and how the Spirit of God is on the move here. Men and women being baptized, uh, young people coming to faith in Jesus, seeing God move in such a special way, even through the community, through your care and love for the community. So I just want to say thank you and, and just really wanted to come by and just encourage you. I bring greetings from a few folks. First, my wife, who wishes she could be here today, uh, but is at home taking care of a couple of uh, kids who are under the weather. And so she sends her love. We're certainly praying together uh, for uh, each of our campuses, but in particular for Amanda. She uh, today is uh, going to be giving birth to that precious fourth baby for, um, for the family and for Winston. Also, uh, some of you were here long enough to remember Brent and Mary Bailey. How many remember Brent and Mary Bailey? Uh, Brent and Mary were such a part of the fabric of this campus, and uh, I was talking to him this morning on the way in. I said, I'm going to be in your old stumping grounds. And he said, please give my love to the church family. And so it's such a great thing to just see how God has continued to bless in worship. And I want to give a big hand to Judson and to the entire team that helped to lead us in worship today. Appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you. Uh, before I pray, I just want to say thank you as well to the team that's here. We got such a great team. So thank you to uh, Pastor Vince, and uh, I, I'm so grateful for him and Judy, for Bill and Cindy and their eldership leadership. I'm grateful for the staff, for um, uh, Andy and Dawn. They do such a great job for Maggie, for just the entire team here. I'm so grateful for you guys. And uh, hopefully you know that God has blessed you with great leadership. I'm a firm believer that when God wants to bless a people, he does so by giving them good leaders. And so one of the ways that I know that God has blessed you guys and that he loves you is that he's given you uh, really good leadership. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for all that we were able to sing today. The best part about those songs that we sang as good as the harmony was, as good as the instruments were, as good as the vocalists were, the best part is that every word of it is true. Thank you that you do love us. Thank you that your, your, your grace is even greater than our sins. 
And so, Lord, I pray that today as we go into your, your word, that you would open our eyes wide, that we might see Jesus in every verse and in every statement. We thank you. And it's in the mighty, matchless, and magnificent name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, this morning we get a chance to talk about mercy. How many love mercy? How many love receiving mercy? Right? How many have a much harder time giving it? Come on, tell the truth. Shame the devil. Birds of a feather flock together. We all have um, a much greater appetite to receive mercy and a much harder time to give mercy than what we care to admit. But we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about all that is uh, connected to the mercy of God, because in order to really appreciate receiving mercy, you, you have to understand some additional wraparound things like sin and repentance and all of these things that are part and parcel with the gospel. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that the stuff we're going to talk about today is central to our salvation. It's central to the gospel. And you know, I want you to understand something. When I say um, that it's essential to the gospel. I'm not just talking about for those who have yet to believe. How many agree with me, believe with me that everybody needs the gospel? How many believe that? That everybody needs the gospel. Uh, the unbeliever needs the gospel. Uh, the church needs the gospel. And the preacher needs the gospel. My heart needs to be reminded again and again and again of the truth of God's word because I so easily forget the truth of God's word. When I go through trials or traumas or difficulties or hardship, I'm so forgetful of uh, the promises and the character of God, the requirements of the gospel. And so that's why I try my best to, as often as possible, uh, meditate on God's word, study God's word, sing God's word, because it's a reminder to my own heart of what is true. And today, as we talk about the, the message of the gospel, the core of the gospel that Jesus preached was a call to sinful men and women, imperfect people like you and me, to turn to him for salvation so that we might receive mercy. As a matter of fact, Jesus' entire ministry message can be summed up in one statement, and that statement is repent and believe. Repent and believe. I know so often we as preachers complicate that. We, we, we make the gospel so layered and confusing that we can lose the core. But the simple message is a recognition like, God, I'm not perfect. And only you can forgive me of my sin. There's this older theologian I'm going to be quoting today. His name is Thomas Watson. I'll get back to him in a moment. But he says this, that there's two graces that God has given to humanity, and that is repentance and faith. And those two act as the wings to which we, our souls, uh, receive salvation and fly to heaven. I love that imagery that God has given two graces to the church, uh, repentance, this turning away from sin, our awareness of sin, turning away from it, and faith, 
trusting in God for our salvation, if you have those two graces, then your soul will rest in the salvation that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So I was thinking today about, man, how do I help to illustrate what, what this mercy, the mercy of God is, is all about? What's a, what's a picture of the mercy of God that really can stick with us? And as I was thinking about it, I was attending my son's basketball game this week. Now, again, we, we got five kids, all of them active in sports, so that means that the Brookses are getting a whole lot of bleacher time, a whole lot of sideline time. How many know what I'm talking about? I feel like an unpaid Uber driver in this season of my life as we go from one practice and one game to another. But my seventh grade son plays basketball for his school, but he also plays on an AAU team. And this week, I was at his game, and he... He plays a part of a, a pretty good team, and this week they were in the playoffs, first round of the playoffs, and, um, and they were playing against a team, and I'm just going to put it mildly, that was uh, much more inferior to their team. As a matter of fact, I want to show you the, the score of the game. The final score of the game this week was uh, 79 to 37. If you can do quick math in your head, that equals 42 point difference. Thank you for helping me with that quick math. Some of you say it's way too early for any math problems. But there, that, that was a 42 point uh, win. And you know, I'm, I'm wired in a way, well, while I'm rooting for my son's team, I'm also a pastor at heart, so I'm feeling really bad for the other kids. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my son's coaches once came to me and said, uh, I know your son's a Christian and he has a great heart, but can you please tell him to leave the fruit of the Spirit on the sidelines? <laughs> we need him to be much tougher when he's, he's playing. But he got it honest. We're, we're, we're wired uh, that, that way. But one of the things that is true about youth sports is true about my son's league. And I played baseball growing up. It was true about my little league baseball league as well. And that is that there is something called the mercy rule. Anybody ever heard of that in sports, the mercy rule among kids? I looked up a definition for the mercy rule. Wikipedia defines it this way. The mercy rule is when a team in competitive sports requests relief or for the game to end early because they have a very large, seemingly insurmountable deficit in the score. So it's like when you get down so much, when you're in such a hole that you say, man, I don't think we're going to be able to come back uh, based off of our own efforts and ability. The team they were playing was, was scrappy and they were tough, and I commend them for a lot of things. They just, uh, there was just a talent differential, uh, and they got down. And in his league, once you're down 30 points or more, uh, you can invoke the mercy rule. The definition goes on to say that, um, that uh, the assumption of the mercy rule is that you are so outmatched that you can't rescue yourself and you can only appeal to mercy, the mercy of the other team, to rescue you from any worse shame or embarrassment. 
So it's implemented for kids' sports in particular, and I have uh, many times in, uh, in baseball growing up been on the other side of invoking the mercy rule, but it's implemented in kids' sports in particular to say, hey, let's protect them from any additional shame or embarrassment as you get further on in sports. You don't get a chance to do that in college or in the pros. You, you get a chance to do that just among youth. But as I was thinking about that mercy rule, it made me think about this, this picture of salvation. You see, many of us uh, know that sin is a reality. How many know sin is a reality? But we live in a generation that really does not understand the, the weightiness of sin. That, that sin is not just the acts of mistakes that we make. And we use a lot of euphemisms for sin, like, man, I, I tripped up, I, I stumbled, I made a mistake, I, I missed a mark. But sin is something more deeper. It is much deeper, as we just sang a moment ago. Sin really is the state of rebellion of the heart. It is when our hearts say, God, I don't want you to be in control of my life. I may know right from wrong, but I'm choosing to do what I desire. I'm choosing my own pleasure over your glory. It's the state of of sin and sin because it is rebellion against God is uh, is a weighty thing. It is the thing that brings about much guilt and much shame to our lives. And when we understand our sin, we understand the need for repentance. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put it this way: that I don't think things like grace, mercy repentance can properly be understood apart from sin. Because why would we need grace? Why would we need mercy? Why would we need a cross if it wasn't for our sin? The reason why Jesus went to the cross, the reason why we celebrate Easter, the reason why in a few short weeks we'll be able to say once again to one another, he is risen, he is risen indeed, is because we needed him to go to that cross because our sins were great. And I know that that's not like a pick-me-up message. I know that some of you may have come saying, man, I was really hoping he would inspire us and encourage us. And I'm going to tell you the message does get a little bit better. But in order for the gospel to be good, sin must be understood as bad. And I'm old enough to remember, and some of you have been around church long enough to remember when the church used to preach about things that we don't preach about much anymore. How many are old enough or been around a church enough to remember when the church used to preach about sin and repentance, about hell and God's judgment and God's wrath? And I know that you won't see books about this anymore because everything is about all of the therapeutic felt needs that we have and uh, how God can meet all of our felt needs. He can help your hair to grow back, help you to lose 50 pounds. You know what I'm talking about. Follow Jesus, and uh, you'll be the best person you've ever been and, uh, in, in your entire life. And, and, and there's, there's a place for some of those benefits. But let's understand the greatest benefit is that God relieves our sin debt. My sin had gotten me in such a debt that there was nothing I could ever do to repay it. The only thing that I could do is to appeal to God for mercy. 
So a proper understanding of the good news requires us to have a full and weighty understanding of sin. Now, I told you I, I'm going to quote this, uh, this older theologian. His name is Thomas Watson. Now, I like to read books, and one of the things that I like to do is to read people who are alive who write books, and I love to read uh, uh, dead people who wrote books as well. Now, you may find that kind of weird, uh, but I was raised by a dead who uh, taught me and uh, my siblings not to commit the sin of what's known as chronological snobbery. That's a big way of saying don't fall into the trap or the temptation of thinking that just because our generation has more technology, more wealth, more military might, that somehow we're wiser than the generations who have come before us. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know what's the most money my grandmother made uh, in, in the watershed high moments of her life. I would imagine my grandma, who spent most of her life cleaning buildings and houses, uh, probably made 35000 at the most at a high year. Uh, but that woman had more wisdom. She died with way more wisdom than what I think I'll ever have. How many of you know the generations that have come before us often have more wisdom than what we, we have? And I miss my grandma. My grandma, up until she passed away about five years ago, uh, I walk in her house, 6'6", six, six, she still made me sit on her lap. And I'm the short one in the family. My brother's 6'9", and she did the same, same to him. Yes, Granny. But Thomas Watson wrote a book in 1668. It's called The Doctrine of Repentance. Now, if you're looking for fun reading on a Saturday night, let me encourage you to pick up The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. But I'm glad that this book has been preserved. Thomas Watson is what you would call a Puritan. He was a part of a movement of Christians that really believed that only God could purify us, that the gospel did that, and we were called to live holy lives before him. Here's what he says about sin. I want you to hear this, and then we're going to go to our text for the day. He says this, sin is a thing of a dreadful nature, and that is because it is against an infinitely great and infinitely holy God. There is in the nature of man enmity against God, contempt of God, rebellion against God. Sin rises up as an enemy against the Most High. It is a dreadful thing for a creature to be an enemy to his creator, but that's what sin makes us. Therefore, let us cry out to God for mercy, knowing that either our sin must drown in the tears of repentance or the soul must burn in hell. These are weighty words. These are words that he probably uh, if he lived in our generation and put in a book, probably wouldn't have sold many copies writing, but yet these are words that are part and parcel with the gospel. That our sin is a stain on our soul. It is more than just a trip up or a mistake. It causes us to have such a great deficit in our relationship with God that we need his mercy. We need to cry out for the mercy rule. But what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go to Psalm 51. 
Psalm 51 together. If you have your Bible apps, you can open it in your, your cell phone or your devices, or if you have physical Bibles with you, go to Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, what we're going to find out today is the source of mercy, that God is the giver of mercy, that the thing that our soul needs most, that your number one need, the number one need of you and I is mercy, that more than we need money, more than we need entertainment, more than we need the latest gadget or toy, we need God's mercy and we need God's grace. How many can say amen to that? Amen. Amen. God is the giver of mercy. Do you believe that? Say that with me. God is the giver of mercy. Let's say that one more time. God is the giver of mercy. But how do we receive God's mercy? Well, we're going to get a glimpse of that in this beautiful song written by a man named David. Now, for those of you who may not know what the Psalms are, they are songs, songs that Israel used to sing. What we have in the Psalms is a collection of Israel's uh, playlists, if you will. It's, It's Israel's hymn book. And these songs were songs that they sang just like we sing songs in our day. Now, before you even get to verse number one, most of your translations will have this little preface at the top that explains the origin of the song. Look at what it says. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is a song that David wrote as he reflected on one of the worst moments of his life. Can you imagine being David and, and walking in to the choir director of your day and saying, um, I, I got a song that, that I would love for us to consider singing together as a community. And uh, the choir director looking at the lyrics and saying, man, this is a really powerful song. Tell me, tell me the background about this. Tell me the the origin of it. Can you imagine David saying, yeah, it comes from a time in my life that brought me the most shame where I I blew it before God. You see, one of the ways that David worked out his sin and processed his sin was through songwriting. I do want to speak to those of you who may be creative in nature and you like to write or do art do poetry or songs as you process through the things of your life. I just want you to know if that's the way you're wired, that's a good thing because that's always been a part of the people of God. And so what David did is he processed through his sin, his guilt, his shame, as he put it into the lyrics of a song. And what was his guilt and shame? If you were with us last week, how many were here last week as as Pastor Winston introduced this series? How many were here last week, right? And just by way of quick recap, uh, you study 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you see one of David's worst moments in life where he commits sin against God by having an affair with a man's wife 
named Uriah. Now, Uriah was one of David's most valiant soldiers, and he was away at war fighting in defense of the country. He's upholding the honor of the country and and defending his king and his country, all the while his king is sleeping with his wife. And so David slept with Uriah's wife, and she got pregnant, and now this sin It was supposed to be one night of pleasure, one small indiscretion has uh, rocked the community, has the potential of devastating the country, and it actually will. And it's a reminder to me of a message that we need to be reminded of in our generation, and that is there's no such thing as private sexual sin. One of the lies of the enemy that he tries to tell us And to tell our children is things like pornography or fornication or adultery or affairs, that these are private things. It's nobody's business. It won't hurt anybody. But I will tell you, yes, there is a private side to what happens in the bedroom, but there's also a public side as well. When my wife and I keep our covenant of fidelity to one another, it blesses our children and our grandchildren. It models for them what a loving, trusting relationship is meant to look like. And according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, that, that commitment of faithfulness and fidelity is a picture of Christ and his church. In many ways, the marital faithfulness that I hope to show to my wife and my wife strives to show to me is a witness of the gospel. We're proclaiming the gospel through our relationship. And so it is on the opposite end when there is unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness, it's not just a private thing, but it multiplies brokenness in the generations, in the community, and in David's sense, throughout the country because of his leadership. And I don't say that with contempt for any person because every one of us are, are broken sinners in need of God's grace. But I am saying to an entire generation that this lie we've been sold uh, in our generation that, that we're living in a day and age where sexual expression should be like a, a canvas and, and you have the paintbrush and you can in unlimited fashion do whatever you want is a lie from the enemy and it will only lead to multiplied brokenness just like it did for David. And I'm so grateful that Scripture doesn't shy away from that. I'm so grateful that Scripture confronts us just like David was confronted by a prophet named Nathan. He confronted David with his sin and said, David, what you've done does not please God. And whenever God confronts me about my sin, it's an act of his mercy and his grace to me because what he's saying is, I'd rather confront you now and protect you from something worse than let you keep going down this road and you might even end up in destruction. How many want to be confronted when you're on the wrong path? I I don't want to stop and ask for directions from somebody and they not tell me there's a cliff ahead. I don't want to stop and ask for directions and they say, hey, just keep going at your current speed and there's a cliff on the other side. If there's a cliff and I'm about to to experience destruction, warn me, tell me. I may not want to hear it at the time. 
but I need to hear. Don't, don't be the friend who just tells me what I want to hear. Love me enough to tell me what I need to hear. David's sin led to another lie, and ultimately he kills Uriah to cover up his sin. And Nathan says, God is not pleased. His judgment is against you and against the nation. And some of us may feel like, well, that's not fair. I thought he was a good God. But how can you call any judge good that turns their blind eye to crime? Can you imagine standing before a judge and somebody's robbed you and the evidence is clear and the judge says, well, I'm a good judge. I'm just going to let him off. How many would not elect that judge ever again? Right? You want this thing called justice. Well, God is merciful, but he is just as well. And in his justice, he does not overlook sin. But here's how good he is. To me and to you is that while he confronts us with a sin, he gives us a way out. And so David appeals to God for mercy in two ways. Let's look at verse number one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. I love this, that David appeals to the character of God. Make note of that. That David appeals to the character of God. When he goes before God, he does not lay out his resume. He does not say, have mercy on me because of all the good things I've done. Have mercy on me because I've been a really nice guy. I've helped a whole lot of people out along the way. Because here's what David knows. If, if my good deeds are weighed on a scale against my sin, my sin tips that scale. My sin wins. That, that my sin is greater than any good that I've ever done. As a matter of fact, all the good apart from God that I think I've done is really like filthy rags in his mind anyway. So I don't bring anything to the party of salvation except for my sin. David understood that. But David also understood something else. He understood the character of God. He understood that by nature God is merciful. And this is one of the things that makes the Christian faith so unique. You can study Islam, and in Islam, there are 99 names for God, but love is not one of them. He's described as being powerful and creator and judge and moral lawgiver, but he is not described as being loving. That is unique to the Christian faith, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever should believe in him. No asterisk by that. No one excluded from that. You and me, rich, poor, black, white, no matter where we are from, male, female, boy, girl, Young or old, if we call upon the mercy of God, we can experience his love. David knew God was merciful. David knew other songs that they had sung, like Psalm 136 that recounts the history, history of Israel from being freed from Egypt and slavery to being put in the promised land. And at each stanza, the chorus of that song is, his mercy endures forever. 
David knew the covenant that God had made with Israel. This is why it's important for us to know the word of God. He knew the basis of the covenant. It's summed up in Micah chapter 6, verse number 8. Here's the basis of the covenant. He has told you, O man, and what does the Lord require? But for us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's what the Lord requires of us. And if we love him, he promises to love us to a thousand generations. So when I choose God, when I put my trust and my faith in him, I'm not just blessing me, I'm blessing my children and my children's children. The best thing you can do for the next generation is not get an IRA. That's great. Not your life insurance policy. That's awesome. All of these things are wonderful things, but they perish with this world. But if we want our children and our grandchildren to have eternal life and life more abundantly, we need to follow Jesus. David understood that, that God, I'm appealing to you on the basis of the covenant you made with us. I'm asking you for the mercy you promised you would give if we turned to you. This man humbled himself and he put it in a song and he gave it to the community because he recognized it wasn't only him that needed salvation, but every one of us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, this is what we often forget this generation has been affectionately called the justice generation. Wherever you turn, everybody's talking about justice. Educational justice, financial justice, social justice, everybody wants justice. And the problem is, is that we've defined justice as calling out the bad actors. But if the scriptures are true, then this track that we're on of just calling out bad actors, eventually it's gonna get to us because there's no good actors. Because the Bible says there are none that are righteous, no, not, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I don't need you just to tell me I'm guilty. I need redemption. I need a way out. I need you to show me where I can go for mercy. What's the pathway out of my sin? David understood what a wretched man I am. The only way out is through God. So he made it a song just like we make songs about God's mercy. I was thinking about a song that we often sing called His Mercy is More. Anybody ever heard that song before? Saying that song? I've, uh, I was listening to it on repeat this morning. It's by uh, Keith and Christine uh, Getty. It's a great song. If you've not heard it, download it. But the first, uh, the chorus says this. I'm sorry, not the chorus. The first verse says this. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. How many praise God that his mercy is greater than your sin? 
How many are grateful that when we are in a deficit that we cannot pay, when we have a sin debt that we can't repay, that we can call on the mercy rule and God gives us mercy and relieves us of the shame and the uh, embarrassment that comes along with our sin. Amen? We serve a good God. Well, just one more verse for you because our time is almost done. I want to look at verse number two. He not only appeals to the character of God, he appeals to the cleansing power of God. Look at verse number two. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He is, um, he's feeling the weight of this. Later on in this psalm, he says, my My sin is before me, ever before me, day and night. I don't know if you've ever messed up so bad that you can't even focus throughout the day. You're at work, you're supposed to be working, but things are such a mess that you can't focus on that. You're you're at home, you're supposed to be eating dinner, but your mind is, God, how did I blow it so bad? At night, you're having a hard time sleeping. Maybe that's you right now. It's a good thing when God grieves our souls for our sin. One of the best things we can pray is, Lord, grieve my heart when I sin. One of the best things we can pray for our children is, Lord, grieve their heart over their sin. One of the best things we can pray for those who are not Christians, not believers in our community, in our lives, is, Lord, grieve their hearts over their sin. David was grieved by a sin, and it left a stain in his life, on his soul, on his mind, on his heart, and he needed that to be cleansed. Unless this is dealt with, I can't go on as business as usual. And we need to be careful not to equate iniquity and sin as interchangeable words. Sin is the act or the state of rebellion. Iniquity is the guilt and the shame that I feel as a result of my sin. So David was looking for two things. I need forgiveness, God, but I also need cleansing from the guilt that I'm experiencing. Forgiveness is great. It checks the box, but there's something deeper that I need. I remember feeling this when, uh, for the first time that I can remember when I was about eight. I was a boy. I was about eight years old, and uh, I walked by my mom's purse one day, and I saw a $20 bill, and it looked good to me, so I took it. And you got to understand, during that time, uh, my dad had left the family, and so my mom was a single mom, and she was working hard, but we didn't have much money. We were uh, poor, or if you grew up in my, in my neighborhood, you dropped the OR, we were poor, and uh, we couldn't afford the OR at the end. And so that's how broke we were. And so I took the $20, and I'm flashing it big time around school, fourth grade, flashing it to my friends. One of the teachers saw it. She calls home, tells my mom, I know I'm busted. And as an eight-year-old, here's how my mind processes that long walk home, knowing that I'm about to get in trouble, is I said, I'm going to throw the $20 bill in somebody's backyard. So I threw it over a fence thinking, if she doesn't find it on me, I can't be guilty. Now, if you are eight years old in the room, that's not the right way to handle it. I'm just going to tell you that was bad thinking. So I showed up without the $20 bill, and I remember my mom looking at me, And she didn't punish me, 
She just looked into my eight-year-old eyes and she says, Chris, I can't trust you right now. And my mom was my shero. I mean, I love my mom and her words. I, I would have rather her say to me, no more video games. I would have rather her say, you can't go out and play for the next two weeks. I would rather receive some type of penalty or punishment, but to have the person that I love the most, my mom, say to me, I can't trust you right now. And it's going to take a lot to restore that trust. Man, that was a lot. That was a weight for an eight-year-old. And I praise God that God restored our relationship. But I remember feeling that again seven years later as a young man, now a teenager. We were on a family vacation. I was on the side of a pull-out couch bed. And somehow the gospel had all come together for me. I had been hearing it preached in student ministry and youth group, but I realized that night that I had sinned against the holy God. I had breached trust, and I needed forgiveness, and I needed restoration. And so I cried out to him to cleanse me. Because the stain of sin is not like any other stain. It doesn't come out through Clorox. You get whatever version of Tide you want. It won't cleanse that. But how precious is that flow that makes us white as snow? How many thank God for the blood of Jesus? But there's nothing like the blood of Jesus. And so today, I invite you to do what David did. Maybe you've been hearing the gospel, just like I did for many years, and you have yet to act upon it. Today, I invite you to put your trust and your faith in him. You know, C.S. Lewis, this great writer who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he says this about repentance. He says, repentance requires action. As long as he doesn't convert it to action, it does not matter how much a man thinks about his repentance. I want you just to intellectually think about what we just talked about. But today, I want you to put it into action. If today you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time, or maybe come back home again, I want you to know his mercy is more. Our sins, they are great, but his mercy is more. And you may say, Pastor Chris, you don't know what I've done. And you're right, I don't know what you've done. I know what I've done. But I will tell you this, there is no sin on earth that's greater than what he did on Calvary. How many praise God for that truth? Amen? I want to invite you to stand. I want to invite you to stand with me as we pray. And if today is the day of salvation for you, after service, there'll be friends here to pray with you. And I'd love to meet you, to pray with you as well. So with the leaders, but don't get this close to God's grace and leave without experiencing his forgiveness and mercy. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your character. I pray that we will receive your mercy, but I also pray that we would give it, that we would tell the world of your mercy until all have heard, until Christ returns. And it's in the name of your Son, our Savior, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart 
and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.